What we've been doing, if you haven't been here, is, is going through the book of First Timothy. We, uh, we love the scriptures here and we love preaching through the scriptures. We believe that the best way that you can grow in your relationship with Christ and your understanding of what it means to be a Christian is just to preach through books of the Bible. Um, after we finish First Timothy, we'll go to another one in the Old Testament or New Testament. Not exactly sure yet. And after that, we'll, we'll keep preaching through, Bible, through the Bible verse by verse. And the reason why is um, it's going to force me always to teach you things that would be uncomfortable for me. <clears throat> I would never, ever want to choose to talk about some things. But if I just preach through the scriptures, I don't have a choice if I go verse by verse. So that's what we're doing right now. And we're going to be in First Timothy chapter four. So if you don't have a Bible, you can go ahead and reach underneath you there. Um, there's free ones under. Uh, please take it with you. You can keep it. The version that you're going to find is the version that I'll be teaching from. It's the English Standard Version. So please go ahead and take that. Um, we have been for the past three weeks in chapter three and we're going into chapter four. Um, the three previous weeks before that we were doing chapter three. And I've been kind of easy on you in regard to number one. All three of them were about 45 minutes. I was very, very nice. Um, also, all three of them, you didn't have to take any notes. It was just sit and listen kind of deal. And everything's changing today. I'm not promising anything as far as time. And there's definitely some notes. But um, writing good for you. It helps you remember things. Um, I, I'm. I'm not planning on going, you know, an hour and a half, but I'll be under that for sure. Um, that's a joke, y'all. Really? All right. Anyway, wow. Um, we need to pray before we get started. Let me pray. God, we thank you for today, and I thank you for your word, and I thank you that you use it to teach us, to train us, to make us more like Christ. And I pray that you would do that this morning, that your scriptures would come, and that they would read us, and they would show us. Um, our sin, they'd show us the places that we fall short and that Holy Spirit, you would convict us where we do fall short and that um, you would soften our hearts to want to repent of those things, confess those things as sin and um, realign ourselves back into the life that you've designed for us to live in Christ. Lord, I, uh, I pray for our hearts that they would be not hard, but soft and, and moldable for you this morning. And that we would find ourselves overjoyed as you break us because you want us to make us more Christ-like. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, there is a, uh, there's a massive weight to this text that before we get going, I want you to feel. Because if you don't feel it, then the next two, three weeks as we go through chapter four are pretty much for nothing. So I want you to feel this, this weight um, as we go through it. And let me um, set it up for you. Um, the whole chapter is what we're, is all one sermon, but I can't do it all at once or we wouldn't, you know, we'd all be pretty hungry. So I'm just going to have to break up the entire sermon, which is one chapter, chapter four, into several weeks. So this is part one of all of them. We're going to do five of them today. Hopefully we'll get to all five. But I want you to feel the weight of everything that we're going to be talking about um, because it's extremely serious. Look at verse one. It says, now the spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, expressly says that in later times... Some will depart from the faith. Stop. Some people will depart from the faith. They'll come into the church. They'll sing the songs. They'll give the things. They'll serve. They'll, they'll do the stuff. But it's telling us, the Holy Spirit is telling us that in later times, some will depart from the faith. Now, from the faith, the immediate context is Paul is saying that in later times, as in, in just a few few um, decades from now, people are going to depart. But all commentators have said, um, yeah, that's what Paul was talking about. Speaking of the Gnostics that were coming in the 40, 40 years later. However, we can, we can clearly say that just j doesn't just apply to the Gnostics in the first century. We'll get to who the Gnostics are if you have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, I feel like this thing just went off. Okay, um, anyway, if you, uh, <laughs> if you don't know who the Gnostics are, that's fine. There, there is some immediate application for you um, as we're going through this. So it's not just talking about the first century. It's all through all church history. People are falling away. Um, but we need to feel this. And I'm not sure if you've ever yourself felt this. I've experienced this multiple times. Standing on the other side of someone as they are about to walk into a life um, of sin ready to walk away from the faith. I've stood across from them sometimes for hours pleading with them. Don't make this decision. If you make this decision, you're going to show that all the things that you've been doing uh, in your faith, all the all the um, efforts you've made have all been for nothing. 
You're going to show that Jesus was never really your savior. And if you make this choice, you've shown us that you're not a believer. Please don't make this choice. Please. I've sat there for hours pleading with them. And, and I don't know if you've ever done this, but it absolutely should break your heart if you know someone that for a time was in the faith, in the community of believers, and they've walked away. And if they have walked away and you know them and it doesn't break your heart, then that's a problem as well that I want you to feel. That you need to know that if someone leaves the faith, it's a tragedy. The Spirit's telling us that some are going to leave the faith. It's, it's going to happen. Um, it's a definite thing. However, you should know this. Skip down to verse 16. There's hope here. There's hope. Not everyone you know has to leave the faith. People will, yes. But not everyone that you have to. Look what it says in 16. When he's talking at the very end of this, he's, this is Paul writing to a pastor, Timothy. He says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. And look what he says. Persist in this. We're going to talk about what the this is. All, the, all that we're going to talk about is the this. The, the entire sermon over the next few weeks is the this. What is the this? We're going to talk about it. But look what he says. If you do this, look what happens. For by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Verse 1, some are going to walk away. Verse 16, if you persist in this, in other words, some are going to walk away. Verses 1 all the way through 15 are the ways to make that not happen in your own life and all the people that are in your church. And if you do those things, you're going to save yourself and you're going to save your hearers. There will be people that you will save. They, they will, in their heart, have decided to walk away. But if you teach them these things that we're going to talk about, they won't. That's a huge weight. It's a huge thing to think about. You have the power in your own life if you, if you put these things into practice or if you start telling these things to your friends that you know you have the ability to accomplish verse 16 in their life. They will be saved. You can save both yourself and your hearers. Now, we know this is going to happen. Um, Paul told this church in another place. This is written to a guy named Timothy. Um, and Timothy was a pastor at the church of Ephesus. We also know if we look in the book of Acts, the book of Acts, you have Matthew, Mark and Luke and John. Those four books are called the Gospels. That's just the story of Jesus's life. Well, after Jesus died on the cross and ascended into heaven, um, you have this book of Acts. And the book of Acts is just the story after Jesus ascended, the story of the very beginning of the church, how the church got started. That's what the book of Acts is. Um, and it just tells us how everything started. In the book of Acts, in chapter 20, it says this. Um, this is Paul talking to a bunch of pastors at this town called Ephesus, the very, the very city that Timothy was a pastor. And he tells them this in chapter 20. He's talking to the pastors and he says this. Pay careful attention. It should be up on the screen if you, if you don't want to flip, which is fine. Just stay at 1 Timothy 4. Pay careful attention to yourselves. He's talking to pastors. To yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That word overseer just means pastor. To take care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, this, this is Paul. Paul would travel from city to city to city and set up a church and then he would leave. And Paul's saying, I'm going to depart from this city. And when I leave, it's just going to be you pastors here in this city ready to take care of this church. And he says, I know after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. People are going to come in into this church, Ephesus, and they're going to try to break apart this church. That's their only desire is to kill the sheep, to pull them away from the faith. And look what he says. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So he tells them in Acts 20, it's going to happen. Then he tells them right here in 1 Timothy 4, it's going to happen. And this is not just a prophecy. This is not just a statement for the first century. And that's not something we need to worry about anymore. This is totally applicable to our lives now. In this church, some will fall away. You have to feel that weight. If you live your life not caring about that, well, then you don't really need to listen to these things because you're not going to do anything anyway. But I'm, I'm confident that that's not the case for all of us here. I'm confident that in your heart of hearts, if you know people in this church or you know people that are Christians that are on the line of walking away, 
Your desires to see them come back, not walk away. Your desires to see them eventually spend an eternity in heaven, not an eternity in hell, separated from Christ, where they will spend forever being consciously tormented. You don't want that. And perhaps you know people. And so what my desire is to feel that weight, to know what's going to happen and be equipped right now as we go through this text over the next couple of weeks to keep that from happening for yourselves and for the people who hear this. They don't have to depart. Now, I know that this um, is written to pastors and I know that this is advice from Paul to Timothy, the pastor, and the weight falls on the shoulder of Timothy, the pastor, to make these things from happening. But... Um, Let's just assume that you want people not to depart from the faith just as much as I do. I'm just assuming that. I think it's a good assumption. I think that that's a good assumption. And that if we do that, we'll all see greater sanctification, greater Christ-likeness in our church. We'll see greater results in our church of people never leaving the faith, however, bringing more people in. Um, So that's what we want to do. Now, let's keep going. It says, now the spirit expressly says that in the later times, some will depart from the faith, which we absolutely don't want. How are they going to do it? By devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Um, liars are going to come in They're They're going to sound like um, they understand what they're talking about, but they're going to be from Satan. And this is what they're going to do through the insincerity, which is really just <clears throat> this word. Insincerity is just hypocrisy. From the insincerity or hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared. This literally means what consciences are seared, who are cauterized as to their conscience. Um, cauterized just means there was some life there. There was some feeling and someone has come along and burnt that completely so that when you touch it, there is no feeling. And I'm sure you know people like this. Um, hopefully your heart's not like this, but there are people who can walk through life and they can do sin And you can just kind of stand there in amazement that they can do that sin and not feel any conviction. It amazes me when I see this. Um, And and I know that I have parts of my life that are like that. But I know that there's some parts that by God's grace that I don't have like that. And I see people do sin and I'm just like, how can they do that and not feel conviction? I mean, you don't even have to be a Christian sometimes and feel that and know that that's wrong. But they're going to be people that are going to walk into your life and to your friends' lives. They, their conscience is so seared that they can they can pull out people from the church and it doesn't phase them at all. It doesn't phase them at all. And this is what they this is what they say. Now, the context is the first century. Let's keep that in mind. The context is the first century. We're going to talk about how it has applications for us. Um, and I'm going to explain what was going on when it, when it talks about the Gnostics. The Gnostics, um, just so you can understand who they are, um, were a first century heresy that kind of raised up. And these people believed, they're very um, platonic in their thought. That's basically the Greek philosopher Plato. Plato believed that um, the body is evil, the body is horrible, the body is terrible, but everything in the spirit realm is perfect. Everything in the spirit realm is good. So what they did is some Christians kind of adapted this Greek thought of Plato. And so they said, that's got to be right. The spirit realm is good. The fleshly realm is bad. There's, there's so many heretical assumptions that go, because if that's the truth, then they have to say Jesus wasn't human. They have to say Jesus only appeared to be human. He only appeared to be flesh, but everything flesh is bad. And they believed everything flesh is bad. Everything. So I should, but they knew that they were flesh. So they should absolutely reject anything of their flesh. If their flesh desires anything, they should reject it, which made them what this big seminary word is called ascetics. Ascetics just means that they they basically um, their goal was to to torture their body. They, they would they would go on long fasts just to try to tame their body and t- tame their fleshly desires. Um, these Gnostics were were a heretical group. Now, we have some modern day Gnostics as well. It's not exactly the same, but we have some. Look what the, now we know what they desired. They, they thought flesh was awful. They thought that you shouldn't have that. And this is why this makes sense. This is what they say to you. These, these Gnostics would come up to them. They were hypocrites. Their consciences were seared. And they were telling these first century Christians they were forbidding marriage and requiring abstinence from foods. They were saying, if you desire to get married, 
then that's evil because you desire to get married because you want to have sex. If you want to have sex, that's wrong. You shouldn't do it. Also, um, you desire food. That's a fleshly desire that you shouldn't want to have. Both of those things are wrong. You shouldn't have those things. You should, you should tame your flesh and deny those things from yourself. And he says, they, deny, they forbid marriage, require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving. What Paul's saying is, God created everything. These things are good things. They are to be received with thanksgiving. And in, in the right context, of course. Um, you, should, you should get married first before you have children, obviously. Um, and try to have children. You should get married first. So there's right context where these things are, 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 um, are to be had. And it says, they, they forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created. So God created these things. And we know from Genesis 1 that when God created these things, he created them good. So they shouldn't be um, pushed away. They should be brought in in the right context <clears throat> to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Look at verse 4. For everything created by God is good. Marriage, food, everything. Everything is created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Now, this is a proof text for the marijuana smokers. And that's just not that's just a bad exegesis. <laughs> that is not what it means. It doesn't mean that God made everything, man. And it's supposed to be um, as long as I'm thankful for it, I don't have to reject it. No, that's dumb. That's just dumb. That's not the point of the text. Move on. Um, for it is made holy. It's, it's, it's made holy by the word of God and prayer. It's made holy by the word of God and prayer. Now, remember the context. Remember the weight that we're supposed to feel. We're supposed to feel people that we know are going to leave the faith. Verse 16 tells us if we persist in this, this, then we'll save them. So we're called to endure. We're called to endure in our faith. Persist in this, persisting in our faith. How are we going to do that? We're going to see, I have 10 things, we're only going to do five today. We're going to see today that if we persist, if we endure in these five things today and the the rest over the next couple weeks, then we will live a life that saves ourselves and saves others. Saves ourselves and saves others. So here's the first one. Here's the this. This is the thing that we're supposed to do. These are the things we're supposed to do to endure. Now, I want to take a little pause um, because I want to remind you of last week. If you weren't here last week, you can grab it off iTunes. You can go to our website and find it. I want to remind you of last week. Because we can easily fall into the danger that I, that I tried to keep us from last week. Paul warned us last week not to make a list of things as our goal. I'm going to give you a list of things to, today and next week. But don't make the list your goal. If you just go after the list and say, all right, Jesus, I've done these things and I'm holy. Then you're going to. You're going to make yourself a legalist. You're going to make yourself a person that loves to do lists and accomplish those things rather than a person who loves Jesus and wants to please him. So as you get these things, remember last week, the goal is Jesus. And if we pursue Jesus, these things will happen. But the Bible gives us practical things because all of us have to say sometimes, what does it mean to pursue you, Jesus? And the Bible's very kind to us and it says it means these things. But just because it says it means these things doesn't mean we pursue the list. We pursue Christ. All right. First one. First one. Number one, receive created things from God with thanksgiving. Receive created things from God with thanksgiving. This is one of the things that we can do. If you do this. You can save people. You can show them since all things are created by God and are good. If we pursue them and we take them and we have them in our in our possession with thanksgiving. If people see us being thankful, then they understand the gospel better. First Corinthians 1031 says this, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. This means that drinking water, drinking water and eating your lunch today can be done for the glory of God. These things can point people to the gospel. These things can save people. Now, the immediate context here, and these are the things I want to deal with, is marriage and food. Marriage and food. Um, These people came in there, these hypocrites, came in here to these people and said, you've got to not marry, and you've got to... Um, watch your, your diet. You can't eat these certain things. They're trying to require abstinence. Um, 
they're hypocrites, they're liars, and they're wrong. Let's just take them, both of them. Number one, marriage. I mean, it's just really, honestly, if people did, if we just think about this logically, if we just think about it logically, now remember the context here. These people were saying, don't get married because that lets you have sex. And so what they're also saying is don't have sex. Let's just think about this logically. If we put that on everyone, you can't do it. Well, we're going to die out in about two generations. It logically doesn't work. It logically doesn't work. And so don't marry is probably one of the, uh, the dumbest things that people can say. The Bible is clear in the very beginning. Be fruitful and multiply. It's the very first commandment given to us in the Bible. God desires for us to get married and have children. It's his desire. It's a good thing. He wants in that order. Get married and have children. Now, um, today, just to kind of bring it forward for us in the 21st century, the lie is the way that they're telling you is that um, the way this is supposed to happen is that you're supposed to try to hook up with as many people as you can. As you're hooking up with them, um, you're going to delay marriage as much as you can. You're going to learn what it means to hook up. You're going to um, move in with each other. Maybe you'll eventually have a kid. And then after you've done that for a while, maybe you'll get married, which is completely backwards. That is completely backwards. You're supposed to get married, then share a home, then have children. So the, world, the way the world teaches you marriage is completely backwards. Completely backwards than what the Bible says. So we shouldn't be um, fooled, but we should take marriage as God's good gift to us with thanksgiving. The next one is food. Um, and it's just crazy to think that we're not supposed to either um, eat it all, which kills us, or eat certain foods. Um, Genesis 9.3, Genesis 9.3 tells us this. Um, every, this is in the creation. God's, God's creating, God's giving us things. And so um, for some of you that are vegetarians, that's fine. But look at what it says. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I've given you the green plants, I give you everything. So um, it's okay to have a conviction that you shouldn't eat meat. But you shouldn't put it on others because God clearly tells us that we should all go get our rifles, shoot down deer and eat deer meat to the glory of God with thanksgiving in our heart. We should. If you can't do that, that's fine. But it's not wrong to do it. It's not wrong to do it. Um, Or enjoy a nice steak. Um, It's okay to do that. Now, let's keep moving um, because we know. Um, that there's more things that we want to see. Now, look what he says in verse six. If you put these things now, these things, he's talking about verses one through five. Um, he's talking about the fact that things are supposed to be received with thanksgiving. Things are supposed to be received with thanksgiving. That's what he says. If you put these things before the brothers, he's talking to the pastor, Timothy, saying, Timothy, teach them these things. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. All right, stop here. This is the second one. The pastor is supposed to remind you constantly that everything that's been created by God is good. This is this is kind of the second one's kind of like point one, but it's a little bit different. Um, This is the second one. Remember that people will depart and that. You're not supposed to be legalistic. That's kind of the summation of verses one through five. The first one verses is receive everything from God with thanksgiving. The second one is you should remember and you should remind others. And if you do this, you can save them. You can save them from departing from the faith. You should remind people that you should remember that people will depart. And if they will depart, you're going to do everything to save them from departing. And you're also should remember not to be legalistic. Um, I've got three children, one on the way, and my youngest is a boy. He's about one and a half or so. And every time, every single time um, he gets a bath or a shower, we take him out and I put him down on the mat. And what does he do? You parents, you know exactly what he does. He takes off running. It's just something about being out of the bath and being clean. And I don't know, he just wants to take off running. And so I tell him every time, as soon as he takes off, he's good while he's on the mat. But as soon as he hits the bathroom floor... With that wet foot, and he just falls and he hits his head and he, oh, and he gets up. And I'm like, every time I put him down, Aiden, don't run. 
Stay right here. You know, you, you can dry him off, but you got to hang the towel up. You can't hold him the whole time. But every time, and he's just so excited, he takes off. I mean, it's just like a, I don't know why, but he does it every single time. And so I constantly have to, as soon as I put him down, Aiden, don't run. Aiden, don't run. Everything's fine. Stay right here. And then you go. But I have to do it every single time because if I don't, he's going to bust it. He is going to take off running, slip on the floor and bust it against the cabinets. Every single time I have to remind him. He has, but now he remembers. He remembers the busting of his head. He remembers that I'm going to say it every time. He remembers, but I have to do it every single time until he gets old enough to understand. Same idea. Remember, you have to remind them and you have to remember. Remind, remember, remind every, as much as you possibly can. Those that you care about, those that will walk away from the faith, those that are on the line, tell them. You remember, people are going to walk away with the faith. You go to them. Everything is created by God is good. Don't be legalistic. Don't, don't go after lists, but Jesus. And remind them of these other things we're going to go over as well. All right, let's keep going because we need to finish this verse six. If you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus. And look what it says. Being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. I want to I you to hear what this literally reads. This literally reads being nourished in the words of the faith and of the good teaching. Doctrine's good, but teaching as well that you have followed. And the reason why I want you to hear nourished instead of trained is um, trained kind of carries the idea that, um, you know, it's optional. If I want to work out or I don't want to work out, I can train and I can get stronger. But otherwise, I'm going to be okay. Nourish cares the idea. If I don't have that, I will die. If I don't have that, my soul will shrivel up to nothing. There's a little bit of a difference there. And so the literal one is nourish. So here's the third one. That you should nourish yourself in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine, but also teaching. Um, it's really both doctrine and teaching. And I want you to know that you should nourish yourself. This means that you should be a studier of the Bible. Um, you should not be a number of things. You can all with, with this crowd, we can go several different ways. Um, number one, the first way you can go is that you just never read the Bible. The only time you ever read the Bible is on Sunday morning when I say open up to first Timothy and you're like, all right, let's let's read it. I'm going to read my Bible for the week. Um, That's that's not good. You should nourish yourself every day. You should understand that the Bible is your life. It is your life. You will not grow spiritually without it. Um, And John five, Jesus is talking to the people of the time who thought pursuing lists and, and, and understanding scripture and learning scripture was the way to salvation, he says, you search the scriptures diligently, but don't realize that the scriptures are about me. They're about me. So you can either neglect the scriptures, but you can also read the scriptures just to memorize, just to study the list and be a legalist and run after those things and not realize it's about Christ. So the Bible, yes, can tell you um, what to do in life. It can tell you all these things. I've heard several descriptions about it. It's the roadmap to life, etc., etc. Um, But the best way to think about it is this. And if you think about it this way, you'll understand that you're going to get your nourishment here. The scriptures are the best way for you to see the beauty. These these words, these printed words on this page are the best way every day for you to be able to see the beauty of the gospel of Jesus. Think about the person that you just adore right now. Every one of you probably have um, somebody that you want to get married to or that you wish they wanted to get married to you or that you are married to, etc. Whenever you look at them, <clears throat> if they, you desire that they want to get married to you, you just don't need to stalk them. Um, but if you really um, see them every day, you have the opportunity to see them every day. When you look at them physically, you're reminded of the beauty that they have. You're reminded of the beauty they have, but you can't do that unless you look at them physically with your eyes. That's the same idea here, but it's a little bit different. It's spiritual. The way that you can physically see with the eyes of your heart, the beauty of Jesus is by reading these words. 
This is not like any other book. Any other book, you can read words on a page and you're just reading words on a page. But this is not like any other book. This book is unique. It is an anomaly. It is its own. When you read this, you can see the beauty of Christ in the gospel with the eyes of your heart. In order to do that, you have to read it every single day. You can't see his beauty without this. And here's the thing. It's, it's in every page. It's not just in, in the New Testament. Jesus is all over the Old Testament. So you have to think while you're reading the stories and the narratives of the Old Testament. Every time I've taught my daughter, whenever I read the Old Testament to her, she's five. I, I try to tell her every time I read you the, the Old Testament, every time I read you the first half of this book, I want you to ask me the question at the very end. Where's Jesus? Because it's easy just to read the stories about Noah and his ark and all the animals or just read the story about David or read the stories about Solomon and all his wives. But the question you need to ask yourself as you read the Old Testament is, where is Jesus? Because he's in there. And as you read the New Testament, where's the gospel? Not the list, the gospel. Because he's in every single page. And if you ask those, those questions to yourself, where's Jesus in the Old Testament? Where's the gospel in the New Testament? Then you will see with the eyes of your heart the beauty of Jesus in the gospel. And you'll find, you'll find this, your affections, your love for him becomes stirred every single day. And what you're doing is exactly what I said. You are nourishing yourself. You're, not, you're training, yes, but you're nourishing yourself. You are feeding your soul and actually making it grow rather than not feeding it and watching it atrophy or die. You're feeding your soul, watching it grow. You're not feeding yourself with lists. You're not feeding yourself with stories. You're feeding yourself with Jesus. And as you do that, you'll grow. Train yourself in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine. The other, the other error is not, um, one error is that we can just not read the Bible. The other error is that we can just study theology and not the Bible. You need to read your Bible. If you are a, a, uh, a theologian, or at least a desiring to be a theologian, if you want to, if, you, if you're the kind of guy like I am that listens to sermons all, all week long, um, I just podcast sermons all week long, and I read commentaries and, and the only books I read outside of the Bible are books about the Bible. That's all I read. It's all I do. If you have that propensity, there's a danger. There's a huge danger. You can start reading those things more than you can read the Bible. If all those books and all those podcasts are about this... Well, this is where we should spend our time first before we go to those things. Before you go to the blogs, before you go to the Twitters, before you go to the podcasts, this is life. Those things, if you have to give up something, give up all those things. Don't give up this. Don't spend all your time reading all the extemporaneous, all the outside things about the Bible and not this. If you know more about your favorite pastor or your favorite book than you know about this book right here, that's a problem. Those books will not nourish your soul like this. Nourish yourself. Nourish yourself in the words of the faith and in the good doctrine. The good teaching. So that doesn't mean just read systematic. Although I would say read systematic. I would say read the Bible. Systematic is a big, thick book about God. Um, this is a New Testament commentary, and this is what it says. A minister, and this is really just for any person. A minister who neglects to study his Bible... And the doctrine based upon it atrophies his powers by disuse. Atrophy just means um, if someone doesn't use a muscle for a while, that's happened to me. Um, as I've gotten older, there's certain muscles that I've quit using just out of old age. If I don't use them, then they go away. They atrophy. And it's saying in order for them to not go away, I have to use them. And it's the same thing. We have to study the Bible. And if we don't, then that will atrophy. It'll go away. We don't want that to happen. So that's the third thing. Let's keep reading. Verse 7. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Um, some of your versions might say old wives' tales. Um, literally, it's old womanish fables. And it doesn't mean that Paul can't stand women and he thinks that they're, they're kind of silly. Um, it's just saying that there are stories that are passed down from generation to generation to generation, that we just kind of accept as true. And we don't even 
look at scripture. One of the main ones um, that I've heard um, a lot of times is God helps those who help themselves. Oh, yeah. Where's that in the Bible? I don't see that. That's not in the Bible. We've accepted it. God helps those who help themselves. It's kind of the uh, the Oprah isms of the spirituality of this world that aren't necessarily true, that we just kind of accept rather than putting them by the scriptures. Um, an example is, and, and some of you might do this if you do, stop. Um, it's those weird emails that you get all the time. You know, there's, there's this guy in another country. He just inherited a million dollars. And if you would just send him your bank account, he's going to wire you the million dollars, forward it to 50 people. Um, those kind of things. If you get these things, don't send them to me if you get them. But um, these things are old wives' tales. These things are irreverent, silly myths. Um, the way that happens is that we have, in, in, in our culture here and, and today, is we've accepted things that we just kind of accept as true without necessarily looking to the scriptures to see if they're true. And he's saying, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Have nothing to do with these old wives' tales. You just live by the word. If you do that, you'll save yourself and you can save your hearers. Keep going. Look what it says this. Rather, so he's, he's saying, don't do this, but do this. Stay away from old wives' tales. Look what he says. Rather, train yourself in godliness. Train yourself for godliness. All right. Um, whenever I was in high school, let me give you the fifth one. Let me give you the fifth one. Train, and this is where we get our word, our word for gymnasium. So this, this means to exercise vigorously. This isn't just kind of, you know, a little run in the park, a little, you know, I'm just going to do a, a beach workout and work out my chest and that's it. Maybe my arms and leave the rest of my body unnoticed. This is a training. This is every single part of your body. This is a vigorous exercise. Train, but we're thinking spiritually. Train yourself for godliness. Now, this is not the same as number three. Number three was train yourself in the words of the faith and of good doctrine. That is grow in knowledge so that you know things about Christ and you worship the person you actually know, not just some figment of your imagination that you think Jesus should be. Number three is grow in knowledge. This one is train yourself for godliness. One is um, pursue godliness, um, pursue knowledge. This one is pursue holiness. This is different. Train yourself in holiness. Whenever I was in high school, um, it's the very first time I ever started working out. Um, clearly, you can see that the results have been massive. Um, anyway, uh, I was so embarrassed whenever I was in 11th grade, I got put in. Was it 11th? 12th. It was 12th grade. 12th grade. Um, I asked to be put in because I was like a buck five. Um, I asked to be put in the weightlifting class. And everybody, buck five means 105 pounds. Um, not very big. I asked to be put in the weight weight class and everybody in there, all the guys, at least maybe even the girls um, were stronger than me and they could, they could bench press. This was kind of the goal. Like this was the goal. Everybody could start with the 45s and I wanted so bad to start with the 45s. It it took me a long time. You're you're over there kind of in the corner, hoping nobody's looking at you, putting on the tens and the fives. Like, okay, I'm only bench pressing half my weight, trying to build up. And so I finally got, I finally got where my max, the most I could do was the 45s. That's 135 pounds. And so I I decided that that was going to be my set. I was just going to do that. I I was not going to be embarrassed by putting the 25s and the 35s on there. And so my sets would be like one done. And I would have to take this 30 minute break just to be able to come back and do another set. But I kept I kept working at it. And you should know. You should know this. Everyone should know this. Not because you should know that this is this is in jest. I am not um, being proud, prideful here. I realize I am not a strong, massive person, Um, but this is all in jest. Everyone should know that there's someone that's for five years has been stronger than me. And just the other day we lifted and I lifted more than him. Um, I'm not going to say who he is, but he sometimes wears funny hats and his last name's Powell. Um, so we're working out one day and all that happened is I did six and he did five. So it wasn't really this huge accomplishment. And he also hadn't worked out for like a year and I've been working out every, every day. Uh, well, every week. Um, but 
I've been training. And I remember in high school, all I could do was 135. But then I got into college, I could do more. And I can remember in seminary, um, as because I, I was working for UPS and I was lift, lifting weights. And I, I was able to do a little bit more. And I remember being excited I could do more. And as I've come here um, and, and continue to lift weights, I've gotten more and more. It's because I've been training. It's taken... Gosh, when was I in high school? 92. Good gracious. I mean, it's taken 17 years to get to this massive physique that I have now. And you can see that's not very much. So we can see that perseverance is a slow thing. And I think we need to realize sometimes when we're told to train ourselves for godliness, train yourself for godliness, you think, well, that means in a month I'm going to be massively holy. Training for holiness sometimes takes a while. And the key is not to say, if I don't attain this level of holiness in one month, I'm quitting. The key is perseverance. Whenever you see sin creeping back into your life, you keep going. You are training yourself. You're training yourself for a marathon, not just some kind of sprint here where one month, if I don't see these results, I'm done. Your life is for the rest of your life, clearly. But you should be persevering persevering, persevering, pushing on, pushing on. You're keeping going. There's not ever a time when you're going to stop. Train yourself vigorously. We should desire godliness. We shouldn't be embarrassed. I remember how, how embarrassed I was as I was doing just the, you know, 50 and 60 pounds of weights. But now I can do what I wasn't embarrassed about. And so we shouldn't be embarrassed of where we are spiritually. We shouldn't be embarrassed to go to someone and say, this is what I struggle with. Please help me. I'm pursuing holiness. It might take me a while. I need you to hold me accountable. Because more than likely, they struggled with that at one time. Or maybe they still do, and that's probably not who you should go to. You should go to somebody else. But you shouldn't be embarrassed. You should keep pursuing it because you love Jesus. Because you love Him. And you want to be godly because He wants you to be godly. Why? Why should we do that? Why should we do that? Look at this. Rather train yourself for godliness. Look what it says. For while bodily training is of some value. We're going to come back to that in one second. Godliness is of value in every way. So he's making a he's making a comparison here. Training yourself, exercising, lifting weights, etc. Makes your bodily more makes your body bodily makes your body more strong. I used to be able to speak English, but spiritually, if you train yourself, it's also a value, just like lifting weights. But look what he says. This is absolutely amazing because the body only holds value. Training your, your body only holds value for just this life. That's it. You're going to continue to get older. You're going to continue to die. You're in the process of dying right now, just so you know. You're going to continue, and one day it will all be over. And when you're 75 and you die, you're not going to be able to bench press 200 anymore. Or 150 or whatever. You're not going to be able to run five miles at once. And if you can, I hate you. I'm just kidding. Um, I don't hate you. I love you, but I can't run very far. Um, Look what it says. For while bodily training is a sun value, godliness is a value in every way as it holds promise for the present life. Look at this. So you can grow in godliness in this life. You can become more Christ-like in this life, which is going to give you hope to continue to persevere. And look at this. And also for the life to come. So if you're picking one, if you're going to pick one, what should I train for? My body to look pretty or godliness? Well, my body to look pretty only lasts for 75 years, 80 years, however long you get to live. But if I train myself for godliness, that lasts for this and for the life to come. It's not just temporary, but it's eternal. Why should you train yourself for godliness? Because it affects your eternal destiny. You can affect it now. That's why. That is absolutely amazing to think that growing in holiness right now affects your eternal life. Let me back up one second. I want to take a side note because this is important. For while bodily training is of some value, and let me just 
I'm going to say this, and this is what I was talking about. You've got to teach through things sometimes that you never would want to talk about because as you talk about them, you're feeling convicted too. Here I am feeling convicted about this. Um, we have to say this. We're not going to spend much time on it. There is some value in bodily training. And this some value doesn't mean oh, that it's no big deal. It's of some value. You can take it or leave it, uh, whatever. It means that God has been um, gracious enough to give you the body you have. It's on loan. It's not yours. It's his. He's given it to you. You should steward it well by the way you diet, by the way you exercise. Um, everything that you do should be showing God that I appreciate this body you've given me. I'm going to steward it well. It's not just something I can just blow all the mess and do whatever I want to with. It's been given to you. This some value means that there is value in it. You should do it. You should take care of your body. Um, keep going. And then it says, for all bodily training is of some value, comma, godliness is a value in every single way. You are an absolute fool. Your life is filled with folly. If you pursue physical appearance and train for that and don't train for spiritual health and you don't pursue godliness. Um, it's just, it's just unwise and foolish to spend all your time on, and money on the clothes you wear, how your face and hair looks and what your body looks like, knowing that all that's going to go away anyway, you are working against time. That's the one thing that will go down while godliness can always increase. So. Don't just train, and this is what a lot of us are really good at, including myself in many areas. Don't just train spiritually to look like you're good in that area so that if somebody looks at it, they'll think you're good in that area, but you're just, you're just doing a beach workout spiritually. You're just working out your chest and arms and not doing anything else for the rest of your body. And everybody looks at it and says, oh, they must be godly in that area. Look, it seems like it. You're lying to yourself and you're lying to others. And hypocrisy... Hypocrisy does cause some to leave. If you ask people why they don't go to church, usually they say, I can't stand the hypocrites in there. And the answer is, you're right. (laughs) We are. All of us. However, that's not the only thing you should look at. But we should pursue holiness. Um, (laughs) I'm going to keep moving. I had it. I'm just going to keep moving. All right. Verse nine. No, let's stop here. Let's stop here. I'm running out of time. Um, let me just let me just talk about how this can happen. Let me talk about how this can happen. How training for godliness in your life can happen. There's three things I want you to think about. Write down these three things. These three things are important. Three things that you should be doing. Number one, you should spare no efforts in attaining this goal. You should absolutely spare no efforts in attaining this goal. Nothing is to come in front of pursuing holiness, pursuing godliness. There are things that will creep in, but you should spare no efforts. All of your day should be devoted towards this. You should model your, the way you go to school. You should model the way you go to work. You should model the way you speak to your children. You should model the way you speak to your wife or your husband. You should model everything after sparing no efforts to pursue holiness. Spare no efforts. Spare no expense to pursuing holiness. If it means you have to give more money away, then you should give more money away. If it means that you have to get up earlier in order to have a time with Christ, you should get up earlier. If it means you have to go to bed earlier, then you should go to bed earlier. Spare no efforts. Here's the next one. Get rid of everything that keeps you from growing spiritually. Now, we can be legalistic here. You can be very legalistic, and I'm not saying be legalistic. I'm not saying to put this on other people. I'm saying to examine yourself. Think about you and you alone. What are some of the absolutely neutral things? They're not good. They're not bad. um, They're just neutral. What are some of these things that if I were to take away some of these in my life, I would increase my affections for Christ? I should get rid of those. I made a list here. I I want to read this list to you. Um... And maybe some of these relate and maybe some of these don't. Maybe some of these are in your life, but you don't have to get rid of them. But maybe you should. Get rid of everything that keeps you from going spiritually. That guy or girl, that habit, 
that relationship, that book, that TV show, that addiction, that need to fit in, that desire to impress, um, that makes you want to fit in, that lie that they, the cool crowd, are having the real fun. And you aren't because you're following Christ. Get rid of that lie. That was mine, by the way, growing up. That was mine. That's what I believed. That they're having the real fun and I'm not because I'm following Jesus. Thanks a lot, Jesus. It's a lie. I had to just give that up. You need to give up that sport, maybe. Maybe you need to stay. Maybe you need to stay. But maybe you need to give it up. That video game. That idea for some of you guys that girls are just trophies for you to conquer. That belief that you don't deserve any better than what you have. Maybe you need to give up that desire to be rich or that desire to have the money but not give it to Jesus. Because he's given it to you on loan. All your money's his. You're supposed to steward it well. You're supposed to give offerings. Whatever it is that's keeping you from growing spiritually, you need to get rid of that thing. It doesn't need to happen over time. It needs to happen right away. If you try to wean yourself off of it, you're just going to go right back to it. Kill it. Mortify. That's what it tells us in Romans 8.13. Put it to death. Put to death the deeds of the body. Now, these things aren't necessarily sinful. But for you, they might be. So don't impose these things on others. If sports is something, this is mine, I can't watch sports. If sports are some things that you can do or you can't do, don't impose that on other people. Let them decide. We all have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. Now, if it's a sin, yes, you should confront them. But get rid of everything that keeps you from growing spiritually. Spare no efforts. Get rid of everything. And here's the last one. Constantly aim at your goal. It's so easy to fall off track here. Aim at your goal. What's the goal? This is the Sunday school answer. This is the one that you should know this one. What's the goal? Jesus. All, the answer is almost 99% Jesus. The goal is Christ. Let me read a text to you. This is what we're going to close with. This is Hebrews chapter 12. It's just about, I don't know, five books to the right or so. Five books to the right. This is what it says. Therefore, therefore, and now I want, you, I want you to understand what this is meaning. And in chapter 11, the writer of Hebrews, whoever he is, just got through telling us of all these people who live for Christ. All these people who is kind of the hall of faith. Um, all of them just kind of live for Christ. And he gives you all these examples of the faith that they had, the faith that they had, the faith that they had. And he's saying, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great cloud of witnesses, all these people that have gone before us that have lived for Jesus, they're all around us. Since we're surrounded by them, let us lay aside every weight. Um, when I was in seminary, I heard a great illustration about this. Um, I, had a, I heard an absolutely great illustration about Hebrews 12. And I think, I think it'll be helpful for you. Um, because it'll take the, the man-centered, everything's about you, away. I used to think, whenever we heard this, that there's this kind of big football stadium. And everybody that's lived is kind of surrounded in the crowd. And I'm running laps around in my little run of faith. And everybody's like, go, go, look at you. I'm surrounded by a bunch of clouds of witnesses that have gone before me. And they're like, go, Fud, win the fight. And they're all looking at me saying, go, Fud, you can do it. But my seminary professor said, that's not really what this means. Think of it differently. Instead of just running laps, think of a long distance run. And all along the side, as they're running, are people that have gone before us in the faith. And as you're running by, there's something at the end. And so it's not all circled around you saying, go, Fud, go. They're saying, as you're running by, look. That's it. There's the goal. He's over there. It takes it so that it's not about you. It's about Jesus. Jesus is at the end. And they're all saying, as you're running, we're surrounded by great crowds of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight, every sin which closely. And they're saying, look at him. He's the goal. There he is. Look at verse two. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, 
looking to Jesus. That's what they're doing. They're not looking at me. They're, as I'm running by, saying, Hey, look, there's Jesus. He's the goal. He's always been the goal. It's not a list. We absolutely don't want people to walk away from the faith. Absolutely. But Jesus is the goal. And look what it says. So since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight. That's the morally neutral things. That list I just said. And sin. The things that we know are sins. Get rid of every single one of them in your life. Which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Only you can run your race. You can't run someone else's race. You don't want to run someone else's race. You don't want someone to run yours. Only you can run yours. Run the race that's set up before you. Don't try to be somebody else. Looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus. This is what it's all about. Why should we look to Jesus? He is the founder of your faith. He is the one who saved you. He's the founder of your salvation. He's the perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. That, that verse blows me away. Think about this. Before he even came to earth, he knew that he was going to die. While he's in heaven with the Father. This is conjecture. Having a conversation about the way he's going to come save all of us. Save all of us. He knows what's going to happen. He knows that he's going to go down there. He's going to die. He's going to die a sinner's death and be totally innocent. And he also knows, which this is the worst part. It wasn't the physical death. It wasn't the nails in the hands. It wasn't the whips and the beatings. That's the worst part. It was when all the wrath of God the Father, all the absolute hatred of sin that God the Father has for your sin and for my sin, when all of that, instead of being poured on out, out on us, would, which would absolutely devastate it, it would absolutely crush us to death, He pours it all out on Jesus for us. Every sin you've ever done. Think of the worst one. All of it. Everything. All the anger. All the hatred that God has for your sin and mine. Poured out on Him, not you. That's not something I would look forward to. That's not something I would want. Someone that I've always been in 100% perfect communion with. Perfect relationship with. All of a sudden will be broken. And all I'll feel from Him is anger and hatred. That's not something I would look forward to, especially when it's God. Now we know that. Think about that. Look what it says. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He knew that that was going to happen, and yet he had joy. Can you imagine that kind of love? For the joy, knowing that's going to happen. For the joy set before him endured the cross despising its shame. And here's why. Here's why he had joy. And is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He knew that that obedient act by obeying the Father would bring him glory. Yes, we get saved. That's a secondary byproduct to the, to the primary thing. He gets glory. That's why he has joy. His glory will be made manifest. His glory will be greater and understood better by us, by Him coming, receiving the wrath of the Father for us on our behalf, returning to heaven to be seated at the right hand of the Father where we will go and worship for Him forever. Amazing. Astounding. That we can be beneficiaries of this salvation. Constantly aim at your goal. If he's willing to endure these things, surely we can train ourselves in godliness because we are absolutely, absolutely in love with him. What I want you to do now is spend a little time in prayer before we go into worship through song. 
This is a celebration time. This is a time of excitement. This is a time of joy. This is a time of extreme worship. This is not where we're kind of ho-hum. We just talked about the gospel. Jesus took for us our punishment. This is a time where we stand and we sing out to him with everything inside of us. All of our love, all of our affections put on him through song corporately as a body. This is a great time. And I just want you to be obedient to the Spirit's leading and how He's asking you to respond in worship over these next four songs or so as we sing worship. If you're not a believer, or if you're new to church, and all this is brand new to you, I invite you to come talk to me after the service. We'll have a time. We'll have people down here. We'd love to pray with you. If you've been walking in a way that's not pleasing to Christ and you need prayer, We'll have people after the service. Please come talk to us. But right now, spend some time in prayer. Maybe confess sin. Stand. Worship with us. This great God who loves us. Who pursues our holiness and pursues His glory. And that we get to come in alongside of Him and make much of Him and worship Him. Let me pray. God, we thank You for Your Word. I thank you that you've given it to us and that, God, you ask for us to be overjoyed in our salvation. Lord, I thank you that we can feel the weight of texts. We can see that when we pursue Christ, we can save others. We know that you're saving them, but that you're using us to save them. That when we pursue Jesus, friends of ours, who have plans to depart from the faith, will not. Because you have chosen to use us to bring them back to you. So let us not grow weary. Let us not stop. Whether we can see the results or not, whether it takes 17 years to keep persevering in holiness, that we would always push forward. Because we know that obedience to you gives you glory, gives us joy, And save people. Use our obedience. Use our endurance. To be a light. Shining bright out to this world. That they can know Christ. They can endure with us. That they can put their faith in him for the first time. Or they continue to persevere in the faith. Be with us now as we worship God.